Hello, everyone. Welcome to All Things Episcopal, where we talk about anything and everything related to the Episcopal Church. This podcast was designed with younger folks in mind and as a space to learn more about the Christian faith with the Episcopal lens. So in traditionally Episcopalian greeting fashion, the Lord be with you. Welcome back to Season 2 of All Things Episcopal. This is Father Colin, and joining me are our co-hosts, uh, Claire and Father David, but I will pass it along to them to introduce themselves. Claire? What's up, friends? Uh, welcome back for Season 2, like Father Colin said. Um, I am glad to be back, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. It's about sacraments! So... <laughs> I'll, I'll pass it on to my second co-host. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Claire. Hey, Colin. It's great to see you guys again. Uh, it's great for all those who are listening. Welcome back. Uh, I, I really enjoyed doing this with y'all uh, last year. And so we're here. And and this is a special. Uh, we're, we're, we're kicking the season two off with a bang because it's a two-parter. Wow. So it's a two-parter. And I believe it's called, what is it called, Claire? The Great Eucharist, Charlie Brown. It's the Great Eucharist, Charlie Brown, because we're doing this around Halloween. All Or what is also called All Hallows' Eve, you know, the Eve of All Saints' Day. And we could probably have done a whole podcast on uh, our, all that stuff. But today, uh, we're going to do a two-part because, of course... You all might remember that we actually started uh, last season on one of the two great sacraments being baptism. And we talked a lot about what it meant, what baptism meant in the Episcopal Church. Um, As important as that is, we all know that the thing that we Episcopalians really get into is the great Eucharist, Charlie Brown. And so... um, I decided that uh, I would, well, it was decided that I would take a lead on uh, explaining the Eucharist. And so what I've, what I, what I have in mind here is, you know, our prayer book is a great resource of worship, but also doctrine. You may not realize this, but one of the great jewels, I think, of our Book of Common Prayer starts around page 845, and it's called the, an outline of the faith commonly called the Catechism. Uh, it's only 17 pages, but there is a lot of, if you if you all really want to know what the Episcopal Church believes about certain things, look at, start with our catechism. And I thought that it might be a, a good way to explain what's going on in the Eucharist, to uh, actually go through that section of the catechism that deals with the Holy Eucharist, which if you want to follow along uh my friends, is on page 859 in your prayer book. So if you want to put a pause on this podcast, go get your prayer book and come back, and we will uh, kind of go through, and we're going to go through each question and answer, and I'm going to give a little commentary. And at the same time, I really, I do want you, Claire and Colin, if if you've got some thoughts, jump in here. And it's not just you. I understand that we've got some uh, young people out there who have some questions of their own. And at certain points, and it's interesting, you know, the great thing about this catechism was I had these these questions coming from different angles, but you know what? I could basically find the answer, well, in the catechism. So we're at, at certain points where you're going to hear some of those questions. 
And I'm going to use uh, this catechism to answer those questions. But so, all right, so you've come back, you've got your prayer book, we're on page 859. And so we start with the very first question, what is, and, and as it's quoted in the prayer book, what is the Holy Eucharist? The Holy Eucharist is the sacrament commanded by Christ for the continual remembrance of his life, death, and resurrection until his coming again. So the, the brief comment I want to try to make, and again, Claire and Colin, if you got any questions, jump in or thoughts. Remember that on the night of his arrest, Jesus was about to be arrested. It was either just before or, or on the night of the Jewish Passover. And you remember the Passover is commemorating that time when God, in effect, passed over the houses of the Israelites and claimed the lives of the firstborn Egyptians as a very, you might say, rough justice for the Egyptian pharaoh having tried to take all the lives of the firstborn Israelites, including Moses. And so they were celebrating this feast of their liberation. And Jesus hosted a meal that, and among other things, we know included bread and wine, because that's what it's said in, in the Gospels, and also in St. Paul's letter, to first letter to the Corinthians. And in some way, Jesus equated the bread and the wine with his body and blood, and he did this in anticipation of what for him, we, we, we can call it the Passover, but for Jesus, I've always said to people, Jesus didn't pass over death. He passed through death to resurrection. And on that night, he commanded those with him and all those who were going to come after, all the disciples who would come after him, to, in effect, repeat this meal for the remembrance of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, the first kind of big word I'm going to throw out here, remember the New Testament was written in Greek. And so sometimes, you know, trying to translate some of those Greek words into English can be can be a very interesting exercise. It said, and you know, Paul talks about how Jesus said, do this for the remembrance of me. And that's what you always hear in the Eucharistic prayer, right? Well, the Greek word, is anamnesis, A-N-A-M-M-N-E-S-I-S, anamnesis. And just like we might have different words for remembering something. So we might say we remember something. We have a memory in our heads. But there, of course, there's another word that's recall. We recall something. But if you think about it to, you know, in our English, to recall can be not just a mental memory, it can be, well, I'm recalling someone from someplace else. And I think for when I understand what Jesus was trying to tell his disciples, whenever they did this, that they were going to be recalling Jesus. It would not just be a mental memory. They would be recalling the risen Jesus from this night so that Jesus would be as present with his future disciples as he was present with the twelve, so that's kind of my brief explanation of the first. What do you, what 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 do you all, what do you hear in that? You all, two things come to mind um, when you talk about remembering. Um, it reminds me of the antithesis of amnesia, um, like why why we have say the word again, Father David, anamnesis, anamnesis. Um, 
why we have that is so that we always remember rather than forget. Um, so I, I like that that language that we use. Um, I think that's that's pretty neat. Um, but also going back to season one with the first great sacrament with baptism, there's a a question that is asked of us. Um, will you continue with the apostles' teaching and the breaking of the bread? And I think what you were just talking about is a great recall to that first sacrament and the baptismal covenant. Um, so that's what's floating around in my mind right now. Absolutely. <laughs> putting it all putting it all together. <laughs> I think it's our it's our former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, I think is the person I recall who came up with that contrast between uh anamnesis and amnesia that that it's uh, that it's the great remembering or the great recalling um i don't know colin what do you think well i'm so so glad you bring up anamnesis it's one of my favorite things to talk about in adult formation at, at the parish um I, i'm i remember one time when we were talking about um we were working through the catechism and um, we were talking about this exact question and I brought up anamnesis in the, the the discussion, and I said, you know, when we enter into the Mass here in a little bit, because we were doing this before church started, and uh, I said, when we go into the Mass and after we have the fraction there towards the end of the Eucharistic prayer and just before the distribution of the gifts at the altar rail, we have this option. Not every, not every priest or celebrant will say um, these words, but, you know, we'll say the gifts of God. Or the people of God. And then at the end there, you can add on and you don't have to, but take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and um, um, and feed upon them in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And I remember just saying, you know, when think of this word anamnesis, when you hear us say remembrance in that moment, make we're making this real and so, so real yet again in that greatest sense of the mystery unfolding in front of you um, and just lean into that uh, and take that to your prayers when you hit the altar rail. Um, ah, so good. So good. Love anamnesis. Wonderful exercise. Thank you. And so, and, and that theme kind of gets repeated in the second question from the catechism. Why is the Eucharist called a sacrifice? And the answer is because the Eucharist, the church's sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving is the way by which the sacrifice of Christ is made present and in which he unites us to his one offering of himself. Now, there's a little bit of a Protestant Catholic background here, right? Um, because we're we're very conscious in the Episcopal Church because, you know, on the one hand, yeah, we, we certainly look Catholic and we've retained a lot of the Catholic traditions. But yes, we also split from Rome around the same time that Luther. And so one aspect of our theology of the Eucharist that is perhaps uh, very conscious of that is the idea that we are not repeating the sacrifice, right? It is one, there's only been one sacrifice for our sins that Jesus made. And and so I in, in popular Catholic understandings in the Middle Ages, one could argue that it it might have been that a lot of lay Catholics might have gotten the idea that the priest was in effect repeating the sacrifice. Well, we don't, it's not a repeat. It's 
Jesus was, he was crucified once. And in our time, around the year 30 AD, but that sacrifice, again, back to the word anamnesis, it's being recalled. And now here, I don't know if this will if this will work with folks listening out there, but you know, when when I went to see everything everywhere all at once, I said on Facebook, this is actually probably as close as one I could possibly get to explaining the concept of anamnesis. You know, the whole idea of everything everywhere all at once was you had, you know, you had these four people, the the the, the Chinese family, the husband, wife, their daughter, and then the IRS agent, and you know how the, the movie was like they had their life in one part. You know there was this normal life in LA, but there seemed, but there were these other dimensions, right, of their lives that were also going on at the same time. And and in a sense, Jesus, if you think about it, because Jesus, on the one hand, Jesus is a human being who lived in a historical time, and yet he's also God. And if God is eternal, if God is infinite, then in a sense, what Jesus did two millennia ago in our history, in our time, he always does. And so that he is as present with us today as he was two millennia ago so that we can pass, we can also pass through the crosses of our lives, just as Jesus passed through his cross. So I don't know. What do you all think of comparing this to uh, to uh, everything, everywhere, all at once? Hey, I think whatever analogy, metaphor, thought, movie, picture, media you can use to try and even take a crack at the mystery that is unfolding is uh, is is a is a good attempt. Because I mean, there's never a perfect answer. Um, um, Saint, we have Saint Augustine to thank for reminding us of that. But um, you know, I think another thing that I often think about where um, you know, the Eucharist is our principal service, but so much of our lives and our liturgy and what we do in, in the church is mapped out over a lifespan and, and stretches generations. And so, you know, every wedding that happens at the altar is is a recollection or, you know, an anamnesis of every wedding that came before it. Um, same thing with the, um, the funerals or baptisms, you know, any of that. So I, the neat part of anamnesis and what you were talking about is it stretches beyond just the Eucharist and is encapsulated in its entirety in the Eucharist. Um, and, and, and it starts to get into, to, to really heady things to think about and concepts of time and great great big philosophical questions um, that can um, lead us down a lot of rabbit holes. But the important thing is to know that it, it is that great moment of invitation and no greater moment of participation in the divine life and what is happening and what has happened and what is to happen than right there in that moment at the Eucharist. I love what you said, participation. I mean, that's at the, we are meant to participate at this. We, it is a, it, we are actually participating in the life of God uh, when we come to the Eucharist like this. And that, that's, I'm glad you brought that word up. Thanks, Colin. 
and joining the choir of angels. I mean, we say Amen. that's what we're doing. <laughs> Last year, I had the privilege of um, preaching. I can't remember. If, must have been All Souls. Yeah, All Souls. No, All Saints. I, I can't remember. One of the two. <laughs> I should remember this, but um, at the Noonday Eucharist, and I talked about my entry point into the Episcopal Church, which happened to be on All Saints Sunday. And my grandmother passed away um, October 31st of 1991. Yeah. And so I share all of that because one of the things that I said was my entry point to the church being unchurched at that point in my life became very mystical and spiritual for two reasons. One, the Eucharist, and two, the music. Because with the Eucharist, it is the remembering, like R-E-membering, of the body of Christ. Those that have gone before and joined, uh, joined Christ and returned to the Father. And those of us that are still on this side of heaven are remembered to not only the saints, but also to each other in that reconciliation, in that sacrifice that Christ gave on the cross, um, that we are reconciled to one another. So it is both a remembering a sacrifice and a celebration all at the same time. And what a, what a beautiful gift. And Amen. to be able to be able to celebrate that every week, mm -hmm. Great. multiple times uh, a week, if you're yeah. lucky. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of does segue, because um, the next question is like, what are what other names, right? You hear, you may hear different names for the service depending on what Episcopal Church you're in. So the principal name that we give to the service is the Holy Eucharist, but it can also be called the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. Or even the mass, you know, and each of the each of those names do say something about what's going on in the service and its importance. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a reminder that it is a meal, and we are to be nourished with grace. And so it, it's it's good to call it a supper because it was a supper. Um, communion, you know that that's the same uh, word from which we get community. If you think about it. And one thing that people may not always realize, we, our language, you know, our prayer book language, um, even, even the right to language, still tries to harken back to, to meanings that maybe we're not as aware of as are the generations before us. So, for instance, in the post-communion prayer, we always say, we thank you, Father, that you've made us living members of Christ's body. Now, a lot of people today have forgotten that mem one meaning that member used to have was a finger of the body, an arm of the body, a limb of the body. Those were considered members of the body, things that were attached to the body. And I really do think that the, to, you know, this 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 supper is not just something. It's not just between me and God or between you and God. It's us. It is an action of the people, and by that action, we become in effect, living members, that is, arms and legs of Christ's body in the world, but also arms and legs of each other. So it really calls us 
to deeper relationship with each other. And then the word mass, okay, you know, that comes from the Latin word dimittis, uh, the nuke dimit, you might have heard the, the, the Latin term for the, the song of Simeon, nuke dimittis, Lord, now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen the glory, you know, the, the light, light for the Gentiles, salvation to the Jews. So the word means dismissal. So really, every time the people are dismissed, and that's what it says in the prayer book, go forth with a blessing. Um, that means you're being told to leave the church building. Why? Because you've been fed with Christ. And if you've been fed with Christ, then guess what? You need to go out and feed others with the same Christ that you've just been fed with. And so that's why sometimes... I'm not sure how many people realize that's why we call it it can be called a mass, but it, it it's funny. It, it's called, it can be called mass, but it's for the very thing that's at the very end of the service, <laughs> because then the service really is meant to continue out into the world. That, was that something you all were aware of? So, yeah. So, well, Colin is nodding and Claire's going, whoa. No, I did not know that. I so, yeah, that's why it's called that. You know, it's it's the great dismissal. Go out, feed others, you know. So so we have so so now we've talked about the different names. So now uh the catechism kind of deals with uh the question of, of a sign and, and a sacrament. Now this is not from the this is not from this part of the catechism, but in it, it, we are told that in the Episcopal Church, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And assure in certain means by which we receive that grace. So in baptism, the outward and visible sign is water. So now the question is, what is the outward and visible sign in the Eucharist? And the answer is the outward and visible sign in the Eucharist is bread and wine given and received according to Christ's command. And I think I'm glad we have this because I think one of the questions that we uh one you know you Claire, you asked some some college students to give us some questions, right? So we weren't just talking into thin air without knowing who we were talking to, that we would actually be able to have sort of a conversation. So um what what was what was that question? I've been to several Episcopal churches and I noticed that each of them does the Eucharist a little differently. One of the things that I've noticed is that some churches offer intinction while others only offer sipping from the Eucharist chalice. I'm curious what the theological importance is behind sipping from the chalice and why a congregation might choose to only offer that. So that question comes to us from Heather. So intinction basically means where either you or the Eucharistic minister takes the wafer and basically dips it into the wine and then puts it on your tongue. So this is, so some background here, right? The outward invisible sign is bread and wine. Now, in the Middle Ages, there was a, a certain fear of spilling consecrated wine, kind of led to the church declaring that Christ was fully present in the bread. And in fact, you might even remember uh, during COVID, uh, a lot of priests were kind of given a, a dispensation that we could give only the the consecrated wafers because it was considered that Christ was fully present in the bread. That was a teaching of the that the Roman Catholic Church 
Gabe. Now, I went along with that. I'll tell you the truth. I went along with that for a while, and not everybody agreed, but I kind of came to realize, well, wait a minute. The prayer book is very clear. <laughs> we are supposed to use bread and wine. And in fact, in the Reformation, that was seen as an important teaching because by the time of the Reformation, you would basically see only the priest consuming any of the consecrated wine. Mm -hmm. And I think that came across as basically you're withholding, you're, you're kind of withholding Jesus a little bit from all the people, right? And so, and that's something that I kind of came to realize, well, wait a minute, we really have to go back to this. Um, now, at that point, of course, the, the one of the questions was, well, can we keep sharing the common cup or is there a risk of disease? The reason we have a common cup, again, it kind of goes back to being a living member. The idea is that we are all drinking from one cup, which makes us one body. And that's the symbolic importance of that. I will say that during the pandemic at one point, I, I took advantage of the fact that some of these companies that sell you know juice cups actually figured out there was a market for more liturgical Christians who might want to have wine. And there are these cups now that have wine on the top. They have a wine. There's a little bit of wine, but then at the bottom, there's a wafer. It's almost like a little chalice. And for a while there, I actually was kind of using those so that everybody could get bread and wine. Now, um, eventually, my parish nurse persuaded me that really there's no risk. There's really the risk is extremely minimal of getting any kind of disease from the common cup. And we went back to the common cup in like July, July, June or July of 2021. And I'm, and I am pretty certain that no one's gotten COVID from sharing the common cup. So now I understand some people might have more, have might have greater concerns about immunities. And so, you know, one, so that is what, so intention is one option, right? Either you or the Eucharistic minister can take that wafer, just dip a little bit of it in the, in the, in the chalice and then put it on your tongue. Or if you really don't feel comfortable with that, I mean, the, 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 the Catholic Church, which includes the Roman Catholic Church, there is this tradition that basically says Jesus's presence is not split between bread and wine. He's fully present. If you just take the wafer, he is fully present, and that's fine. It's just that we, we tend to think that, uh, I think in the Episcopal Church, we do believe that if people, under normal circumstances, people should take Jesus fully, you know, uh, bread and wine. So there's some there's some history there. There's some current issues there. Uh, what are your what what all what, what are your all takes? So a couple of things come to mind, um, Father David. You just mentioned that Jesus is is fully present regardless if you have both bread and wine, as long as um, like the, as long as you receive bread, um, like you're you're essentially covered. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Um, and so we call that in one kind, right? Correct. Correct. That's that's that practice. Um, Father Colin, I'm curious in in your congregation, because um, as to what Father David said earlier, what you call the service kind of reflects the characteristics of that parish. And 
you said that oftentimes your con- or your parish refers to uh, the Holy Eucharist as the Mass. So, with that being said, I'm curious: what are your um, protocols, so to speak, with how you distribute the elements for the Eucharist? Do you all primarily use the common cup and default to um, intinction or is it like half and half or, you know, yeah, I'm curious. <laughs> so it, it's the, it's the practice at my parish where I currently serve to um, yeah. So common cup for sure. Um, people do intinct and it's often those that either um, would just prefer a less alcohol in their life um or um yeah so there there are folks that, there are folks that do like to intinct but our eucharistic ministers father david um alluded to earlier are uh those that serve with us the the priests up at the altar um the servers eucharistic ministers they will take the host the bread and they will um dip it in the wine for the individual and place it on their tongue. Um, if folks are, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's our practice with intinction um, and receiving it's most everybody though is receives bread. Um, and uh, you, uh, for, for you listeners out there, this is hard to uh, say when I'm looking at my co-hosts and I can show them with my hands, but um uh, uh, folks will often have the hosts in their hand and just bring it up to their mouth and then just receive it that way. They don't, they just don't play. Uh, we call it not playing with our food. Um, so, and, and just being reverent with, with what is being placed before you, um, and, and treating it with the dignity and respect that you would, um, the Lord of Lords. Right. That's so fascinating because, um, I've I've never seen that happen in an Episcopal church where the um where a Eucharistic minister or um a member of the clergy will actually dip the wafer or bread into the wine and then give it back to you. I've always had the elements given to me and then I intinct or dip it in to the chalice. I think that's really fascinating because I've been an Episcopalian for 22 years and I've never seen that happen. I've only seen that happen in Catholic churches. So you learn something new every day, folks. Like even though like you might be, you know, a member of your faith community for 20 plus years, like you learn something new all the time. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Episcopal church is that um, we are both Catholic and reform. And we have many different ways of um, observing uh, these holy mysteries. And yet we are all coming to the rail for the same things, reconciliation, remembrance, love, yep. mercy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you say that because I'm and, and, you know, I kind of said something about a little less alcohol in their life a little bit ago. Um, you know, there, there, there's the reality that, you know, some, some of us have struggles in life and those come in different, many different forms and different, many different things. And, um, alcohol is a very real one for a lot of folks. And 
I don't think that should be something that stops somebody from receiving um, communion. So, you know, I, I know for a lot of folks as a, as a, as kind of a pastoral move, they, if they really want to refrain entirely from alcohol, they will, they'll kind of just, um, I've seen some folks take a host and place it on the edge of the chalice as the words of the wine uh, distribution for the wine are said to them, and then they will receive. So it still is this sense of receiving um, Jesus fully in both kinds, um, but still recognizing that, you know, for, for very good reasons, um, they need to refrain and, and that's okay too. Um, yeah. And and naming that that's okay, I think is important. Yeah. Um, so, I know, I know a couple of folks, um, you know, whether it's a need or just a desire um, to abstain from alcohol, like some people do dry January. Um, and so sometimes they'll even include wine at Eucharist for that. And what they'll do is they'll receive the host and then reverence the chalice um, and kind of like do a small bow to it when the words are are said. Now, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you calling bringing out what I was aware of too, that yes, for some folks, you know, taking the chalice would actually contribute to their, their spiritual problem, you know, to, would, would be, would not be, uh, help them. And so that really segues into the last question we're going to deal with for this podcast, right? We've talked about the outward and visible sign. Now what's the inward and spiritual grace given in the Eucharist and the official answer of the Episcopal church is the inward and spiritual grace in the Holy Communion, is the body and blood of Christ given to his people and received by faith. Now, we've had two questions that some some of our students have asked. Does the Episcopal Church believe in transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or something else? So, one question is, how is Christ present? And this kind of, and, and you heard the word transubstantiation, consubstantiation, okay? So those are originally Latin terms that were that kind of came around in the Middle Ages and in the Reformation. And here's a and there's something and now we are getting kind of philosophical here. So to to talk of transubstantiation is literally to say a transformed substance, right? Now, one of the things that I think our modern English language to quote T.S. Eliot words crack with it words something about words crack they 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 become imprecise they change meaning and so our english word substance it comes from the latin substantia and the thing is at least initially originally substance did not mean something material because the latin substantia was a translation of the greek word usia from which we get essence. So the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, I think it's important to say, is not implying a chemical change in the bread and the wine. You know, I, I don't, and, and now I'm, I will, I, I will, I will give a warning here, you know, and when this podcast is released, there may be people, there may be Episcopalians out there who take issue with what I say. Okay. And that's fine. Okay. But the, the, the term transubstantiation means a transformation of the basic essence of what this body, of what this bread and wine 
are. Okay. Um, you know, because the truth is, you know, it got back to what Colin taught we were talking about before. If someone drinks the chalice, it may it will still have the same chemical impact on their bodies. And so to speak of how is Christ present is not to say, in my opinion, it is not to say, and I and, and at least as I understand the Episcopal Church, what we're saying is it's the body and blood of Christ given to his people and received by faith. So it's the body and blood of Christ, not just when the priest says it is, it's the body and blood of Christ when we receive it, when we are fed with it. It is food for our souls. And and how does that happen? Well, you had another question, basically, that basically was summarized, when does Christ become present? Why don't we hear that question? Does the Episcopal Church have a stance or theology of when exactly, during the words of institution, Christ becomes truly present in the elements of bread and wine? So by so the question is, when does Christ become present in the Eucharistic prayer? And I know for a long time, there's a lot of that happens around the word, what, what we call the words of institution, when the priest repeats the words of Jesus. But I think the way the Episcopal Church understands it, the whole action of the Eucharistic prayer, the taking, the offering by the people of bread and wine, the blessing by the priest, the breaking of the bread and the sharing, it's all one action. And Jesus is present in all of that. Now, if you were to, if there is one place, interesting enough, it's not as much the words of institution as it is um, that part of the Eucharistic prayer that's known by the Greek word epiclesis, where the priest puts a hand over the elements and prays for the blessing of Christ's word and the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy, it is by the Holy Spirit that they become Christ's body, right? A body that in one sense, and I'm borrowing a term here that N.T. Wright has come up with, transphysical. You know, if you think about Jesus's trans body, his resurrected body, it was still physical, right? He said to Thomas here, look at the nail marks, <laughs> look at the wound in my side. And yet at the same time, he could he could spend a whole afternoon walking beside two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they, had, and they didn't know who it was. Or you could have disciples behind a locked door and Jesus suddenly shows up. It, it, in one sense, Jesus's body is more than just his physical body and blood. He, it is his resurrected body is beyond just the physical. And so there's not one single point where the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood, but in that whole action. And, and I'm going to sort of wrap up what I'm saying here. And I'm going to quote some of you, you might have, you all might have heard, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth I, the first Queen Elizabeth, who was, you know, raised Protestant. And then, you know, she was having to make sure she did not lose her head when her sister Mary, who was a devout Roman Catholic, became queen and was trying to jerk England back into the Roman Catholic Church. And at one point, Elizabeth was imprisoned in the tower. And one and part of the interrogation was about do you really believe in the quote real presence or are you just a Protestant? Do you just think it's a symbol, right? And that's what and and obviously there are some Protestants out there who think of it primarily as a symbol, right? As not conveying the reality of Christ's body. Well, Elizabeth, it, it's it, it's it's said that what Elizabeth replied was this: 
"'Twas Christ the word that spoke it. He took the bread and broke it. And what his word did make it, that I believe and take it. There's no heavy philosophy there. There's no mention of transubstantiation or consubstantiation. But Jesus said it. And on some level, I think we're just asked to accept by faith that Jesus is present in the bread and the wine. And we don't have to philosophize about it. We don't have to try to somehow make it sound like that it's really Jesus' physical body and blood that's been cleverly disguised, you know. And because it is, because he said it. So what do you all think? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, but to keep them reined in, you know, I, you're talking about taking bread and wine, right? The literal gifts from God, grapes and, and wheat that people have taken and formed as gifts to give back to God. And God is so great and loves us so darn much that he takes these gifts from his creation, blesses it, and gives it right back to us. And it is the greatest gift that we could be given. And it is so, it is all wrapped up right there in a nice, neat little bow in our Eucharistic prayer. And I mean, look priests and bishops and deacons and lay people too. Like we could all sit around and talk about at what moment in the Eucharistic prayer, if we said the right word at the right time with the right inflection and tone in our voice, then boom, Jesus will magically appear. And that's just a silly conversation to have because truthfully, Jesus is present for the entirety of us gathered as the body there. Um, both in proclamation of word and at the table. So, um, you know, pick a moment, I guess, if it feels right for you. But there's many moments where Jesus is present, but especially with those good gifts that we have taken and brought to the altar and that God has made his body and blood in whatever way that means for those that are sitting in the pew, right? Because the three of us can sit in the pew together or chairs or whatever your church has. And you can see it, Father David, as the physical flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And Claire, you could be like, homie, you are insane. And there's no way that's what that is. And the Episcopal Church says, yeah, that's okay. Because sure. Christ is still present. <laughs> and that's the mystery that we lean into as Anglicans or as Episcopalians, right? Mm -hmm. So the, lean into it, and, and that meaning and that presence will define itself for you. Yeah. And I think to to Father Collins' point about that meaning of presence, um, in, in the Episcopal Church, we have two, two rites. So in, in loose terms and informal terms, it's the same content presented two different ways. And within right two, which is what we're primarily referring to right now, is we have several different Eucharistic prayers. And in the, the one that is oftentimes, uh, visually seen first in the prayer book is Eucharistic prayer A. And for those of you that are following along in a prayer book, 
It can be found on page, uh, give me one second, uh, 361. So that's Eucharistic Prayer A. And then if you flip to page uh, 363, and this can also be found online. So it's the bcponline.org. Um, if you are a techie person and you still love Jesus and you want to <laughs> see Jesus on your phone, great. Um, there's this beautiful part that says, sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people, the body and blood of your son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. Sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. That is part of the epiclesis, or some people pronounce it epiclesis, um, for Eucharistic part A. And I bring all this up because to Father Collins' point about how each Episcopalian can find meaning, different meaning in those words. And yeah, I could say, yeah, homie, you're crazy or <laughs> not crazy, but like, that's not what I agree with. Um, while someone else could say, you know, something different, but that part about sanctifying us also that we may faithfully receive the sacrament going forth with as much faith and good intention as you have um, to receive the sacrament is really at the heart of what God wants. God wants our hearts um, and that we be a part of it. Yep. So I think that's probably a good place to for us to stop for this episode. There's still some more to cover, uh, particularly if you are looking forward, I'm going to, we're going to talk next time a little bit of what I call Episco etiquette. Mm. Mm. Like, what do we do? What are we supposed to be doing during the Eucharist? And we'll, so that we'll have some more practical conversations about the Eucharist next time. But oh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about all things Episcopal, visit campusministry.dioestmo.org backslash all things Episcopal. All Things Episcopal podcast is a production of the Diocese of West Missouri in association with Resonant Media. The Lord be with you all.